God is so good. Do you know how I know that? Because in his great mercy, I was not in the office when they were dressing up. (laughs) (laughs) Praise be. Good morning, folks. Uh, This morning, we're continuing our uh, Advent series where we're looking at various passages of promise, parts of the scriptures where we are encouraged to hold on to hope. We're encouraged to hold on to hope, especially during trying circumstances in life, which we all experience at one time or another, or perhaps it may feel like a constant uh, reality. And a common instinct in times of trial, uh, or a reflex rather, is to try and bubble ourselves up in denial. We try to convince ourselves that things aren't as bad as they are. And passages of promise in the scripture do something else. They counsel us to recognize just how bad things are to really appreciate the scope of their awfulness, but all the while to hold on to hope. Just before I get going, I want to address uh, something that I spoke about uh, on Friday evening. So this will be um, uh, a repeat for you if you were there, but it's relevant for us today uh, too because we're speaking about a passage in the scriptures that talks about the exile of Israel, and we've been singing songs about Bethlehem, and, uh, and some, so many of our carols mention Israel, and I think it's important, especially in our time, to contextualize what we actually mean when we speak about Israel. All the references to Israel in our songs and scriptures and our sermons need to be handled with care at all times, but especially now. What we mean when we speak about Israel is this, that Jesus was born at a particular place, at a particular time, into a particular people. He was a Jew of Judah, which was the last part remaining of the original nation of Israel, which God himself established. And he was born into a time of waiting and expectation for one who would come and fulfill the promises that God had himself made concerning the destiny of Israel. That destiny uh, was a promise made to Abraham that Israel would be the conduit of God's love and mercy to the whole world. And that destiny was met in the person of Jesus. And they waited in that time for that one. And we too wait for that one because we live in this in-between time of Jesus' first advent and his second advent. And when Jesus does come again, he will rid the world of war, of pain, of suffering, of sickness, and will wipe every tear from our eyes. And so we see Jesus as the hope of Israel, not just then, but now also, but also as the hope of the whole world. And so we're called to weep alongside our brothers and sisters of all nations, tribes, and tongues, wherever they are, whenever they are, and whoever they are. 
And all the while, we cling to hope. We cling to the Prince of Peace who calls us to serve and love even our enemies. But now uh, we're going to look at today's passage, which is in Jeremiah. If you have a Bible, turn to Jeremiah. It's a big bit sort of around the middle. Um, And we're in chapter 29, uh, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 14. And it's got some fun names in it. So I uh, picked on Lindsay to to read those out for us. So Lindsay's going to read chapter 29 of Jeremiah, verses 1 to 14. Can we get the mic? Can we, can we get the mic on? I'll just say it really loud. There we oh, go. Wait, there we go. All yeah. right. Verse 1. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen, the queen mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name I did not send them says the Lord for thus says the Lord only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place for surely I know the plans I have for you says the Lord plans for your welfare and not for harm to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Thank you, Lindsay. Well done with those names. Great, great work. (laughs) Polite smattering of applause. So in this uh, letter that Jeremiah sends uh, to the exiles, he has three pastoral concerns that he's hoping to address. And these are my three main points this morning. First of all, he wants to outline the situation as it truly is. Secondly, he wants to teach how to act within that situation. And thirdly, he wants to instill hope that the situation will not always be as it is right now. So the reality of the situation, the strategy 
for living in this situation and the hope that this situation will not last forever. So first of all, his outlining of the situation as it truly is. The warning that Jeremiah gives in verses 8 and 9 against false prophets is a general warning against false prophets, but he does have a specific false prophet in mind. Back in the previous chapter, Jeremiah describes an encounter with a prophet called Hananiah. By the way, if you guys are looking for baby names right now, this is a great passage. Um, uh, But Hananiah, the prophet Hananiah pronounces in, in chapter 28, verse 11, He says, uh, it says, Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, thus says the Lord, this is how I will break the yoke of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon from the neck of all the nations within two years. And at this, the prophet Jeremiah went his way. And then later on, uh, just a couple of verses later in verse 15, Jeremiah says this uh, to the prophet Hananiah. Listen. No, no sentence that starts with listen is going to go well, is it? <laughs> listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I'm going to send you off the face of the earth. Within this year you will be dead, because you have spoken rebellion against the Lord. And in that same year in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. It's in this context that we must read the letter from Jeremiah. And all too often, that really encouraging bit of chapter 29 is taken out of context. All the lovely bits about God having a plan for us to make everything nice and and make everything better. But it comes after Jeremiah has just outlined that things are much, much worse then you have been led to believe. This time of tribulation is not going to be short-lived. You're not going to be out of it in a jiffy. And anyone who tells you so should shut up and die. (laughs) So Jeremiah is speaking to a people who are in danger of being duped into believing that they're going to be on the up and up really soon. And he tells it like it is. This is why I like Jeremiah so much. Now, to say such things as a prophet is not designed to make you popular. It might also make you dead. Jeremiah did not have a good time, if you want to read about uh, the way he was treated. But by telling it like it is, that the exile is not going to last just a handful of months, but a handful of generations... He's telling us in his initial listeners that they themselves will not live to see the end of this predicament. But he's not just a doomsayer. His intention in communicating this reality is, believe it or not, coming from a pastoral heart. It's to provide a necessary antidote to the rose-tinted view and instead paint a much more realistic, even if more bleak, view. But he doesn't just leave them there. He doesn't just tell them it's going to be awful and then leave them to it. Because his second pastoral pastoral objective is to tell them how they must respond to this reality, how they must live given these circumstances. Because if we were just left there, 
if they had just been left there with this terrible pronouncement that things are much worse than people were leading them to believe. One might think, well, why don't we just give up? Why don't we just give up on this attempt to be a people uh, made in God's image that actually live to worship him? What on earth have we got left on earth to cling to? The temple's gone. We've been ripped out of our home. Our identity is being wiped away. What's, what is there that's left to hold on to? One of the commentators I read on, uh, on Jeremiah said, when you've been taken off into exile, can you really be bothered to build and plant? Do you want to bring children into this God-forsaken world? And God's answer, according to Jeremiah, is, yep, be bothered. Build, plant, have children because God has not forsaken this world. I, spent, uh, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago about some time I spent with a friend I've known for nearly 30 years, and we'd been teenagers in the 90s, and it was our assessment that being a teenager in the 90s was pretty much a golden era, um, because we, didn't, we don't think we would like to be teenagers now. Um, it, seems to, uh, it seemed to us that our present time must be a really, really difficult time to be growing up, where the climate is in free fall and social media is the primary form of exploring one's uh, place in society, and the threat of world war just doesn't seem to be that implausible anymore. But God says, keep calm and carry on. Build houses and live in them. Plant crops and eat from them. Marry, have children. Don't wait until some better time comes along to get on with your lives because the time is now. You don't know how it's going to turn out and that is no reason not to start something. And he also gives really clear and practical wisdom about how to engage with society. He says, don't cloister yourselves away in this kind of protective bubble. Get out there. Work for the betterment of the place where you live and the people who you live among. The key word that Jeremiah uses here is shalom. When he says seek the welfare, he's saying seek the shalom of the city where you live because it's in their shalom that you will find your shalom. It's a word that means wholeness and peace. Pray to the Lord on behalf of the city. Note what he doesn't say here. He doesn't give them any reason to expect that they will attain positions of power and influence and control so that they might impose their will upon society. The command given here is much more along the lines of serve them. Do not despise them, however much they actually represent the destruction of everything you hold dear. It's a pretty challenging command. And I think they're crucial words of antidote to some of the narratives we ourselves may have been sold. Because on one hand, wider British culture may expect Christians to keep their faith private and not allow it to inform or influence our engagement with society. 
And on the other hand, Christian culture can often prescribe that we use our positions of influence and authority to enforce certain practices and values. And I think that Daniel in the Bible, who did attain prominence within Babylon during exile, he demonstrates how to do neither of those things and yet live within the mandate that God gives. He works within the system, neither forcing his way nor compromising on his singular objective of being an obedient slave of God. When Jesus taught his disciples, he taught them to be salt that seasons everything around it, or yeast that causes the whole dough to rise. So he outlines the situation as it truly is, and then he gives them a strategy for living within that situation. But the third pastoral concern of Jeremiah's letter is to hold on to hope. If, he, if all he had had to tell them was that life was crap and just to deal with it, then I get why they'd be pretty mad at him. But he doesn't leave it there because God has something else to put into the hearts of people so that they might accept hardship for a season. The situation is much worse than you think, but God has not abandoned you. Hold on to hope. When Jeremiah says this, it packs a punch because he's been honest. He's contextualized hope within reality. When hope is not couched in reality, it's no longer hope, but rather it's wishful thinking. Not the same thing. Wishful thinking is saying, it's fine, everything's fine, while the house around you is on fire. Wishful thinking is passing legislation declaring that Rwanda is a safe place to send refugees when three courts of the land have decided that it isn't. That's wishful thinking. But hope, as opposed to wishful thinking, when considered in the context of reality, is an assuredness that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. And that his intention is ultimately not to punish, but to bless. But it's not going to happen on a timescale that suits us. It's not designed that way. And for the exiles, they needed to accept that this was not going to happen in their lifetimes. Nevertheless, we're encouraged, like the exiles, to accept that God is going to bless and that there is something in that blessing that every individual can hold on to. Another commentator says that in this context, my individual hope comes from being part of the project with God's people that God is committed to completing, even if I see little progress in my own time. My individual hope comes from being part of the project with God's people that God is committed to completing, even if I see little progress in my own time. And to be honest, I accept that that sometimes doesn't feel like enough 
the exiles in their situation and we in whatever situations we find ourselves may feel as though it's just too much to bear. And that the promise of something that lies beyond our reach is just not enough to satisfy the felt needs of the moment. But the story did pan out just like Jeremiah prophesied. And that's why this book is in our Bible. But it's not the only book in the Bible. Other books go on to tell us that with every next phase of the people's history, there were things to celebrate and things to suffer. So the Babylonian Empire was ultimately defeated, but then it got replaced with another empire. The exile ended, and people returned to Jerusalem to celebrate, but they didn't all receive a friendly welcome. Struggle. The temple that had been destroyed was rebuilt. Celebrate. But it wasn't very good. (laughs) Worship resumed there. Great. But the Lord's presence was not seen to descend upon the temple in the way that it had done when Solomon had dedicated the temple or when the tabernacle was built in the desert. So every stage, there has been hardship, but not hopelessness. And we find ourselves at a stage in this story where however hopeless it may have seemed in the moment, we're still in the story. It hasn't ended. And so we can hold on to hope. Jeremiah's words counsel us to accept both these things. Life is hard, but it is not hopeless. We're to look beyond hardship and fight the temptation or the inclination to despair. We're to hold on to hope even when, and especially when, things look at their most bleak. There are parts of the New Testament that speak of how we, the church, also exist within a state of exile. A lot of the teaching that we find in the New Testament makes the assumption that we're a kind of kingdom enclave where uh, we are supposed to be in the world but not of the world. Just as the exiles were in Babylon but not of Babylon. And in Revelation, John uses the image of Babylon itself to describe um, the, uh, the kingdom that had major influence in the world at the time. And we have Babylons in our own time as well. And what we're to learn from this is that the teaching Jeremiah gives the exiles here is of profound relevance to us today. The exiles themselves were able to look back in their own history to a time when they had been slaves in Egypt from which they had been delivered by the power of God in the Exodus. And so just as they had to hold on to hope in a moment that seemed bleak, they were able to look back on God's powerful acts in the past. And so too are we able to say, we have seen God move. Come and do it again. 
But we have an advantage, actually, that those exiles didn't have. We're at a stage in the story that has undergone further development. So um, this letter was written about 600 years before Jesus. And then when Jesus was born, he himself had to go into exile, fleeing uh, the wrath or the uh, fear of uh, Herod. So this, this pattern of um, hope in exile is a repeating one, and somewhere inside this repeating pattern is the wisdom of God. And so here we are, and we have our own predicaments. Jesus has come, and he's gone. And we're stuck in a time between times. But something that was a distant hope for the exiles that Jeremiah wrote to is actually a present reality for us. When God says to us, when you call upon me and come and pray to you, pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. So as we wait for the return of Jesus and for the fullness of his kingdom, he may yet be found if we seek him with all our hearts. And that's what we're going to do together now as we pray for one another in ministry. Why don't you stand if you're able? And I think uh, the Lord particularly wants to minister to those for whom present circumstances are threatening to eclipse the promises that God has made to them. I think God wants to minister not just to that feeling, but also to the feelings of associated guilt for even feeling that way, for feeling as though we've somehow failed in faith, that we have uh, allowed such a feeling to pervade so insistently in our lives that they have threatened to drown out the voice of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're struggling this morning to hold on to hope, come alongside brothers and sisters in the faith and be encouraged. And as Jeremiah says, Seek him, and he will be found when you seek him with all of your heart. So why don't we pray? Lord God, we thank you that even uh, in times of trial and times that seem utterly void of hope, that you are there.
I'm reminded of the words of Psalm 139 where uh, the psalmist proclaims that wherever he goes, God will find them. And God's actually already there waiting for you. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would do two things this morning. One, that you would reveal to us the reality of our situation, that we might confront the difficulty and the pain that is in our lives. But into that moment of vulnerability and frailty and fear, we pray that you would pour your Holy Spirit into us to comfort, to heal, and to restore hope. In the name of Jesus, we pray.